If you have an unquenchable thirst to crush your bucket list, relentlessly pursue your dreams, and live life on your own terms, then turn up the volume and tune in. You're now listening to Zephyr Moses Blacksburg on the Year of Purpose podcast. Zephyr Blacksburg here, back again with another episode of the Year of Purpose podcast, and today I'm joined by Peter Danish. And Peter is an award-winning, best-selling author. He is the editor-in-chief of BroadwayWorld.com Classical, one of the nation's most popular entertainment websites. He has a current bestseller called I'll Give You Exactly Five Minutes on Amazon, and his novel The Tenor, released last year, won several major book awards for Best Historical Fiction Novel. He spent 20 years in the television industry as Director of Marketing for NBC, Vice President of Marketing for Telemundo, Senior Vice President of Marketing for TV Azteca. He's a media marketing consultant by day and a writer by night, and today he's hanging out with us. How's it going? Going very well, thanks. Thanks for having me on board. Yeah, no problem. So you ultimately left the TV world to to start a business, right? That is correct, yeah. Cool. So this is something that I think a lot of people would love to hear because you spent quite some time before you decided to make the leap. Um, you yeah, know, I did. Some... I, was, I was what we call a lifer, you know. <laughs> I was 20 years into the television industry and <clears throat> quite on a lark in 2004. I was working on the NBC Upfront. Okay. I don't know if our listeners out there are familiar with what the Upfronts are. The Upfronts are in the springtime when the TV networks put together these large dog and pony shows and invite their best clients from around the country, and they give them a preview of the fall schedule in the spring, and they ask for their money up front in exchange for a significant discount on next year. So that being said, that's the busiest time of the year for the TV networks because they bring in 70 to 80% of their revenue during those two months. So it was crazy heck time working from 8 in the morning until 10 at night every single day. When as fate would have it, I ran into a friend of mine from high school in a coffee shop. And she said to me, what have you been up to? What are you doing? And I told her and she said, you look dreadful. You look drawn and tired. And I said, well, I've been working like crazy. There's really no, there's no rest in, the, in my industry. It's, it's round the clock this time of this time of year. And she said, I'm about to go to Bosnia for two weeks with a group that works with children in an orphanage. You should come. <laughs> and I said, oh, yeah, that sounds like me. Go to Bosnia for two weeks to work at an orphanage. And strangely enough, the thought stuck with me as the next couple days went on at work, when you find yourself working day in, day out for the greater glory of a big conglomerate, you do some soul searching. <clears throat> and I did a little homework on what my friend was doing with her trip to Bosnia and found out the group she was working with was a group called the Fellowship of Reconciliation in Nyack, New York, wonderful organization uh, that does humanitarian work in war zones all around the world. Terrific, terrific bunch of folks. So I looked into the trip and said, you know what? Let me see if I can get the time off. And I did. I took the two weeks off in 2004. My boss was ready to cut my throat, uh, asking for two weeks of vacation right in the middle of the upfront. And I went to Bosnia and had an incredible time. The expression life-changing is used an awful lot nowadays, but this was truly a life-changing experience because 
<clears throat> it's difficult to describe. We live in uber luxury compared to what some people live in. And until you experience it firsthand, you can't describe it. I had watched the videos, I had read the books, I had you know, seen the films, and nothing prepared me for the first time. You're working with uh, a child who has no hands. Or the first time you meet someone who's lost a leg to a landmine. <clears throat> the difficulty I had was keeping it together. Um, and my interpreter <laughs> said to me, you drop one tear and you're going home. These kids don't need your tears. They need your strength. And I thought about that. It was hard. It was the hardest thing I've ever had to do. And it has turned out to be the most rewarding thing I've ever done. And I came back home after 10 days working in Bosnia. And I came into work. And I walked into my boss's office. And I said, Ed, I have to tell you about this trip I was just on. It was unbelievable. It was, it was the greatest trip I've ever been on in my life. I feel I did more good the first day than I've done in my entire life, cumulative, up to this point. And he said to me, are you done? We have a lot of work to do. And I was completely crestfallen. And I knew right then and there that my time at NBC was, was not going to be much longer. So I went back to my desk and made my plan for my escape, as I call it. And a few weeks later, uh, I walked in and said I resigned. And it kind of threw them for a loop. They weren't expecting it. They were angry, and they said, you're not going to get any severance package if you leave now. And I said, I really don't care. And I went home, and I booked the flight back to Bosnia. And I wound up going back for the summer, and I went back that fall as well. And that crazy, uh, angry interpreter who was giving me so much hell while I was there, well, I wound up marrying her. Wow. Ten years later. Uh, I've been back almost every summer since. I've been back eight times. And it's something that's very meaningful to me, and it's changed my life in, in so many ways. Um, my father passed away a few years ago, and he said to me something interesting. He said, it's the best and the worst thing you ever did. I said, what do you mean? He says, because I can tell how much you love it, but I also can tell how meaningless nine-to-five work seems now that you've done something important. And it was really hard to come back to just working for the greater glory of General Electric or the greater glory of NBC if you, you know, work with children, underprivileged children. It's really, it's really you know, a difficult balance to find. Everybody has to pay their bills, but the enrichment that I got from that was like nothing I've ever gotten before was really really special yeah i can certainly imagine and <laughs> i'm wondering what was it about your friend coming up to you and saying like here's where i'm going and here's what i'm doing that encouraged you to look at it more because i know that i've been put into circumstances before where people are like oh let's go do this and you know right away that voice in the back of my head pops in and says oh you're never gonna do that like why would you do that that's stupid and well uh full disclosure Bosnia is part of the former Yugoslavia before the war over there. Uh, it all used to be one country, and that's my ethnicity. Ah. That's my ancestral homeland from a, a little city called Dubrovnik, the most beautiful city on earth. It's where they film Game of Thrones. If you ever uh, watch Game of Thrones, that's all filmed in my hometown of, of Dubrovnik. So I had a desire, I guess inertly, to go and see my family and my cousins who I hadn't seen in over 20 years since before the war over there. 
so it kind of it resonated with me. It's, I tried to forget about it, but I wasn't able to. It just stuck with me. And now it's something that's part of my life every day. Yeah. And it's funny how <laughs> sometimes life brings up those events where, you know, you're extended an opportunity. And had you not gone on that trip, uh, I'm sure that, you know, you could still be stuck sitting at your desk wondering why you've been doing this for so long. No question. I would not have, I wouldn't have had the courage to leave my job. I wouldn't have had the courage to write my first novel. I wouldn't have had the courage to put my, my speech coaching techniques into a stratified format, which became a book, <clears throat> which became a bestseller. It was one of the, which has become classes, which has become a writing academy at all. And I all, I think it all stemmed from that one decision to take that leap uh, to go to Bosnia and do something completely out of character for myself and something that, frankly, my family and my friends thought I was certifiably insane <laughs> doing this at the time. They thought it was just crazy. Uh, they couldn't see what I saw. So so you walk in to resign, and <laughs> obviously they don't take it very well. What goes on in your mind that that keeps you going on that path? Because clearly you still have to walk out of that door at the end of the day. Well, I'll tell you, you, you struck you, you strike on something very, very interesting and funny there. My boss immediately thought I was negotiating for a raise. <laughs> he didn't think I was quitting. He thought, all right, you want more money. What do you want? And I said, I don't want any more money. I just don't want to do this anymore. And he said, fine, right, right, right. How much? What do you need? <laughs> and because that's, that's the currency in which he traded. He lived in a world where everything was dollars and cents. And he couldn't understand that that was not what was propelling me at that moment. I was on a little bit more of a spiritual journey than he was. He was on a dollar and cents journey. They're not, they're different tracks. Sometimes they can run parallel to one another if you're very lucky. In my case, they were completely divergent. Yeah. So did you have any concern in, in making this decision to leave that money could potentially become an issue? I was terrified, but I also knew that I felt so good when I was doing this that I started thinking about um, something that my grandfather, God rest his soul, died at 99 years old, told me an old anecdote about when I went to college, he said, and I'll paraphrasing here, old Yugoslavian proverb, you go to school to get an education, you get an education to get a job, you get a job to get money, you get money to get things, you get things to make you happy. See the progression? If you can go straight to happy without all those other things, you're way ahead of the game. And I went straight to happy. <laughs> so I think about that all the time. Um, I was very lucky because at the time that I left, I was one of the bigger, I guess, speech writers, for want of a better term. I wrote a ton of sales presentations and speeches for the executives. And they wanted to keep working with me even after I left. So I picked up a terrific amount of freelance work, uh, continuing doing ostensibly what I was doing nine to five, only doing it on my own terms, on my own time. And when you do it that way, it's, it's easier, but it's not easier because uh, it requires discipline to get up every morning. Like I was joking with you a few minutes ago, I said, do I have to change out of my pajamas for this interview? Um, I was sitting down right here, writing, 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 uh, very casually dressed with my, with my cup of coffee here and making absolutely certain you get up every morning and you start to work 
that's a discipline that's really hard, and you have to learn that. Uh, when you're working in a nine-to-five existence, you don't have to learn it. It's there. You know you got to hop on the bus at 7 a.m. to be at the office at 9, to, you know. So it's the regimentation is there for you. When that when that wireframe is taken away from you, you've got to find it in yourself. And it's a lot harder because, you know, your tendency is to say, eh, I'll hit that snooze button and start an hour late this morning. I'm a little sleepy rather than just get up, start the coffee and get to work. So yeah and, and was the trade-off well so when you remove this wireframe because this is you know we were all given this wireframe like you were saying of you grow up you go to college you get a job you know you make money you get a family it, what how do we remove that wireframe and allow people to go straight to happiness you know what it's hard because you often don't know what's going to make you happy until you stumble across it and I do, I do a lot of um, speaking to students in colleges about careers in the media. And one of the things I've noticed, uh, I, ha- I have two brothers who are accountants. And they're both very, very happy. They've always been accountants. They love numbers. And they're very good at what they do. And they're both making uh, very nice livings doing it. I hated numbers. Hated it. I wanted to eliminate them from my life uh, as soon as I got out of college. I never wanted to see another number for the rest of my life. Um, wanted to change my phone number to letters, my address to let, you know, but that said, it's not the reality we live in. So what I tell a lot of students, college students is what you want at 21 is not necessarily what you're going to want at 31, let alone what you want at 41. And to put all your eggs in one basket, very young, if you are blessed and you happen to find that thing that really floats your boat very young, then the Lord has put a finger on you and said, you're blessed. I think 99% of the people in the world don't have that happen to them. They discover it much later in life. And far too frequently, they, they think, I've spent too much money on this education. I can't change. I can't go back to college. I can't re-educate myself. I can't. I've got responsibilities. I've got a family. I've got a mortgage. And the truth of the matter is they get stuck in a rut. And... That is the way our society exists. A lot of European societies um, will pay you to take a year or two off. They will pay you to go back to college and retrain yourself. We don't have that in this country. Where education is, is too much of a business in this country. It's not viewed in the same way that it's viewed in a lot of other countries in the world. And having worked um, in academia for the last couple of years, I've seen it. Uh, I've seen it firsthand, just how much it's propelled by the financial end, which is really kind of sad, but it's inevitable because that's the society we live in right now. Um, that said, I would encourage young people to try as many things as possible, to do as many internships in different areas as possible. I joke that my final year in college, uh, I took an art history class just to fulfill, um, it was an elective that I needed to fill I forgot what it was I had to fill. And it was the best class I ever took in my life, by far. And I thought to myself, wow, I want to do this. But wait a minute. I'm at the end of my four years. I'm not going to go back and start over just because one class happened to pique my fancy. So I bought books and read about it. And it's been a passion on the side all this time. I always knew I wanted to write. I always knew I wanted to write, and I've written since I was very, very young. 
but I never had the confidence to do it for a living. And I don't know whether that's psychological makeup or what. Doing it for other people was always easier because it was kind of behind a mask. Writing ad copy, writing magazine copy, writing uh, sales videos, writing speeches for other people, I was never in the spotlight. I was never the one on stage with the lights. Uh, it was always someone else. I was just feeding them. I was the Cyrano giving them their words. It wasn't until I had a, I had a mentor, God rest his soul, his name was Steve Levin, a uh, wonderful, wonderful guy. He was the head of sales at Telemundo, the Spanish television network, where I worked for about 12 years before NBC bought them, and I got transitioned into NBC. Steve was the most natural speaker I've ever seen. He's one of those blessed fellas that just loves to go on stage. He's, you know, he walks out and it's like he's with his family and never breaks a sweat, never forgets his place, never stutters, nothing, just wonderful speaker. One day I was sitting with him in a restaurant and he had to give an after dinner chat for like five or six people, some clients. And he was a nervous wreck. And he said to me, I hate doing these little talks. I just hate them. I always forget my place. I forget where I am. I forget. And I said, but you're the most natural speaker I've ever seen in my life. You can't possibly. And he said, little secret, Peter. He goes, I'd rather speak to 500 people than five. He said, it's a performance when I'm out there in front of 500 people. When I'm sitting face to face with someone, I'm looking them in the eye. He says, whenever I look somebody in the eye, I tend to lose my place and forget what comes next. He said, if you could figure out a way to help me with that, you'd really make my life easier. And I'll tell you the truth, that was where my system, the Orson system, was born. Because I came up with a way for him to organize his material in such a fashion that he didn't need index cards, he didn't need notes. And right before he passed away, he said, you should write a book. And I, I didn't take it too seriously. But since then, I've worked for two dozen CEOs whom I write speeches for and do speech coaching for. And virtually every one of them said the same thing. You should really write a book. Well, I said, I don't think I really have a system because my technique, if you want to call it that, is not a technique at all. I approach every single speaker differently. I don't have my technique. My technique, if you want to call it that, is that I seek out their strengths and I amplify them. I pour gasoline on their fire. One of the things I never ever do is criticize in any way, shape, or form. Even constructive criticism is still criticism. And on a tacit level, any criticism is judgment. And I never want someone whom I'm coaching, who I'm teaching, to feel I'm judging them. So my feeling has always been make them better at what they already do well and little tiny mistakes that they might make, people will forget and forgive. If they give a compelling, interesting speech, if they get something wrong, if they snap, no one cares. If they like them, if they trust them, if they feel you've been honest with them, if you're interesting, compelling, and entertaining, the little mistakes don't matter. Worrying about perfection will cause you so many more difficulties in a presentation than worrying about being honest. And the good thing about being honest and about being passionate 
is that something that you have complete control over? You determine how much honesty, you determine how much passion. Not the room, not the subject matter, you can control that. And that's the most valuable commodity in any kind of communication. And it's at your disposal. And once people start to think that way and realize that they're the captain of the ship and they control the most important facet of this communion, this communication, they feel more confident. And when you feel more confident, you're less nervous. And when you're less nervous, you present better. It's, it's a pretty simple philosophy. Yeah. And, you know, I, I watched one of your videos, which I really enjoyed, um, talking about facing your fears. And there's something really terrific at the core of that. Um, and I thought about irrational fears. I have a, an absolute terror of heights, terror of heights. And I have a friend who teaches trapeze arts. <laughs> and this week she's trying to convince me that I should really uh, come on over, climb up on the trapeze. And I'm wondering, I'm either going to get over this fear or I'm going to have a heart attack and die. <laughs> and what you wind up doing, I spoke to many, many psychologists about this, is you develop what they call avoidance behavior. You avoid situations that you think are going to make you feel uncomfortable. And that kind of spirals out of control. You avoid this, you avoid that, you avoid this. You worry about worrying. I love this episode so far, and I want to take a brief moment to talk about improving yourself each day. I know you are a huge fan of living life on your own terms, but if there's one thing I've learned in my journey, we need to constantly grow and look to others who have been in our shoes which is why I've partnered up with Audible to give you one free download of your choice from over 180,000 books. Start your free 30-day trial by visiting yearofpurpose.com slash audible. Now back to the show. Yeah, I, I mean, I've been there trying to fall asleep as you're trying to fall asleep. You can't mm -hmm. fall asleep, so you worry about falling asleep, and then you worry exactly. about the fact that you're worrying that you can't fall asleep. Yeah, that's, that's exactly the case. And what I found, what I wound up doing when the last, last CEO I was working with about a year ago um, said to me, you have a technique and you don't even know it. You just need to sit down and spend some time. So I went up to the attic, took out a bunch of cardboard boxes and pulled out about a hundred uh, various speeches and presentations which I had written over the years. And I invested the time to diagram them and go through them and see what commonalities I could find from one to the next. But because the way I work is to focus on each individual's particular skill sets and talents, I didn't find obvious commonalities. What I did find were there were certain areas that every speech tended to cover. Broad areas, not specific areas, but broad stroke areas. And I created the columns, and I went speech to speech, and saw that each one had this, each one had that, each one had this. It was different in each speech and in each presentation. But it fell into a broad column, uh, for want of a better term. What became my Orson system was this chart, this out-of-control chart of 100 speeches that I had put on graph paper, and diagrammed and said, okay, every good speech has this, 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 and this. 
the order in which they come can be different. The, the emphasis you put on each one can be different. But the point I was trying to make was the one thing that I heard more often than anything else was speakers going blank. They go blank. They forget where they are. They have that terror moment. I don't know what comes next. And I figured that is the one fear that we need to alleviate. Because if you know where you are and you know what's coming next, you won't be worried. Because you're the expert. You know the material. And I thought about something you said. It's very similar to uh, something you said in your videotape uh, presentation where you said you like to give people five points on a whiteboard next to the camera. Makes absolute sense. It's virtually the same idea. Because once you've gotten the cue, if you're the expert, you can talk ad nauseum about that point once you got that cue. Yeah. So what I tried to do was create, once again, I go back to the expression wireframe, just the cues. If I know I'm talking about the research now, I know next up is the solution. If I'm talking about the solution now, I know next up is the opportunity. If I'm talking about the opportunity, I know next up is next steps. And it's such a simple, uber simple system that I've used it with every single presenter I've ever worked with since. And you know what? It works magically. Half of them don't even have to use cards anymore. Dang they nice. just remember the word Orson. And those five points fall into those broad stroke categories. And it's worked magically. It's amazing. And if you, if you get a chance to take a look at my book, I, I, I'm, I'm humbled by some of the testimonials I've gotten uh, from people saying how it's changed their lives as professional speakers not to have to go up there with a speech, not to have to use a teleprompter, not to have to have cards, to just know that one word cues them in their thing. Yeah, it's it's been it's been remarkable, and it's strange because uh, there's a there's a great great actor named Bill Irwin. Uh, um, he's he was Mr. Noodle on Sesame Street. He's done he's won a whole bunch of Broadway Tony Awards and stuff. Great guy. He's my neighbor. Lives right down the block. And he joked with me once. He said, "There's good BS and there's bad BS," and I love that expression. He says, "We all know what the bad BS is." I said, "What's the good BS, Bill?" He said, brevity and simplicity. And I thought that was, that's the name of a chapter in the book. Good BS and bad BS. And brevity and simplicity is what it's all about. Nice. So I, I have to ask because I feel like these five steps could probably be associated with life as well. Because if we're easing the anxiety of, of speaking, mm -hmm. uh, of getting up in front of people, of forgetting what's next... You know, I, I think that this could probably get applied to real life because most people uh, were were in or maybe still are in a situation like where you were, uh, mm -hmm. where for 20 some years they had stayed in the same position. Uh, so is there a way to use this this five part system uh, in looking at life as well as a speech? You know, it's interesting you mentioned that. And it's a very, very uh, adroit observation. When I was at NBC, we were forced to take something called Six Sigma Process Improvement. Um, and I'm a Six Sigma Greenbelt. Six Sigma is 
highly specialized statistical analysis. And it was developed by a university in Texas and applied to, at the time, it was largely to assembly line type of production, analyzing what are the critical to quality issues. And well, at the time, I thought, this is utter nonsense. Why in God's name am I learning statistical analysis when I'm in a creative business? I'm in a relationship business. You can't apply relationships and creativity to uh, repeatability and reproducibility of assembly line. But spending a couple of months learning the Six Sigma process, it did teach you intrinsically to apply a more strategic approach to everything you do. And I think that deep down, the more strategic you think in all things, the better your life is going to be. Because one of the things it taught you is to start with the finish, start with the end, uh, and work backwards from to get this, to get this product, what do we have to have? To have that, what do we have to do? To do that, what resources do we need? To get these resources, how much money? And it, it was a very linear, logical process. And I think that my Orson system may have, even a, on, a, on a subconscious level, been influenced greatly by that. And that Six Sigma process can be applied to anything in life. Uh, so when you ask, can it be applied to life? Yeah. And if you look in the back of my book, I apply the Six Sigma not just to not just to speeches and presentations, but to problem solving as well. Um, how to deal with certain situational analysis in a business context and how it applies, how it applies to that as well. And it's, it's interesting to me, um, like you said, how do you apply it to life? I think that once you start to view things, from, you know, starting from a 10,000-foot view, and bringing it slowly into, into greater focus, it's always going to help the way you think. Because every different view from every different viewpoint is going to trigger all kinds of other possibilities that you couldn't see from this distance. You couldn't see the level of detail from here, so you didn't think of that possibility. From here, you saw a lot of detail, and that triggers a lot of possibilities. So I think in, the, in that respect, it can be applied to life pretty much on a day-in, day-out basis. Very cool. Well, this has been a great conversation so far. I'd love to round things up just a little bit here. Is there any one lesson that you could give out to everyone listening in today that whether it came from, you know, your trip and in helping others and in serving others to figure out, you know, where you were supposed to go in life uh, or maybe just in your experiences from from speaking or from, you know, writing speeches for other people? What would you say is the one thing that, you know, anyone could apply right now uh, to make a difference in their life? I'm going to actually say two. How's that? You can um, go for it. I didn't write. Um, I spent 25 years working in media writing for other people. And it wasn't until I was almost 50 years old that I decided to write something for myself. Because when you get a little bit older, you don't care as much. You're not as worried about what are people going to think, what are people going to say, stuff like that. And I wrote this novel, which took off, did very, very well. I've gotten hundreds and hundreds of letters from people saying how much it touched them. More importantly than any of the money, more importantly than the awards, was getting notes from people saying how the novel really, really touched them and really hit them in a soft spot. And the ability to do that is an incredibly enriching, enriching feeling. 
As a result, a few, I'll give you an anecdote. A few months ago, I spoke at the New Jersey Festival of Books on two completely different subjects. I was asked to speak about uh, my public speaking course, and I was asked to speak about fiction writing. And I use the term wireframing quite a bit. For folks who are in the, in the computer world, they know what it means. Um, but I use a wireframing technique for writing my fiction. I come up with the skeleton, and I just start hanging things. Because I think if you just work in a linear fashion, quite often it becomes daunting. And sometimes life can become daunting if you're looking for that immediate next step. Sometimes you need to look over here and over there to put other, hang other things, you know, put other meat and, meat and, and bones on the skeleton uh, to try and get to the finished product. As a result of this presentation at the New Jersey Book Festival, I was asked by a couple of universities to teach my courses as an adjunct professor, something I hadn't really considered before. And then I thought, you know what? I'm kind of in the same situation where I was with NBC. I've been writing for other people, not for myself. So instead of teaching at the universities, I said, the amount of effort I'm going to spend coming up with a curriculum and a syllabus for a university, you know what? I'm just going to open my own little studio. And that's what I did. I started my own little Danish writing academy right here in Nyack, New York, where I live. And I'm taking students one-on-one. -on -one. And in the fall, I'm going to be teaching to small, to small classes. And I can say very proudly, my first two students, my first two protégés, both received publishing deals. So the application of that uh, really worked out. And it, I would never have thought five years ago, ten years ago, that I would enjoy teaching as much as I do, imparting knowledge, imparting information, because it's, it's very human, it's very enriching. And you, you probably have heard me use the word enrichment 20 times during the course of this interview. And that's something that is very personal, and it's different from person to person. But at the end of the day, it's, it's what makes you know, your life worth living. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, everyone listening in is going to find this interview quite enriching. Uh, I'd love for everyone to be able to learn more about you and your books. So what is the best way for everyone to find out uh, more information about you and what you're doing as well as to uh, to find your books? Um, my two books, and I have a third one coming out in October called Medjugorje, uh, which is about the town in, in Bosnia where little children are seeing visions of the Virgin Mary right now. Uh, it's a mystery. My book, The Tenor, which was a work of fiction, is available on Amazon and, uh, and better bookstores near you and on all the various e-platforms. My business book, I'll give you exactly five minutes, is also available in all of those, in those areas. Um, but you can get more information on both by going to danishmediagroup.com. And you can find out more about my writing courses at danishwritingacademy.com. Pretty Very simple. Cool. Sounds good. Well, Peter. Or you can look me up and give me a call. I reply to everybody personally. Perfect. Well, Peter, thanks so much for being here with me today. And uh, it's been a great discussion. And uh, I look forward to staying in touch with you. Sounds great. Thank you so much. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Year of Purpose podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to leave us a rating and review if you loved this episode. Now, are you ready to live life on your own terms? Head on over to www.yearofpurpose.com right now for the tools, resources, and the roadmap to living a life rescripted. And tune in next week for another episode of the Year of Purpose.